chapter 2, verse 1. It says, A man from the household of Levi married a woman who was a descendant of Levi. And the woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a healthy child, she hid him for three months. And when, but when she was no longer able to hide him, she took the papyrus basket for him and sealed it with bitmune and pitch. And she put the child in it and set it among the reeds among the edge of the Nile. And his sister stationed herself at a distance to find out what would happen to him. So Pharaoh's next plan of killing all the baby boys has gone into action. And so this mother decides that she's going to resist Pharaoh and not and hide the baby boy. Now, the boy is um, not the focus yet. The focus is still not Moses. The focus is the three women. Okay, we are introduced to the two women in the last chapter as the one that God used, the insignificant culturally woman, so to speak. Now we're going to be introduced to three more women, Moses' mother, Moses' sister Miriam, and the Egyptians, um, Pharaoh's daughter. And what's interesting here is that Pharaoh thought that the women were not going to be a problem, so he chose to kill the males. But what ends up happening is the women actually become the problem. If it wasn't for the women, this child probably would have died. And so God, once again, is using what the culture would say insignificant, but he's always using the most unlikely device of that culture to save them. This is the focus. Now, the fact that we're introduced to the tribe of Levi, this is very important. Because if you remember anything from Genesis, the last thing that we learned about Levi was that he and his brother Simeon decided that rather than punishing Shechem for the rape of their sister, that they would slaughter Shechem, slaughter the father, and slaughter every single male in the town, take all the women and all the children and all the animals as slaves. That is definitely not godly. Not only that, they used the sign of the Abrahamic covenant to deceive the village in order to kill them. That was not the point of the Abrahamic covenant. The point of the Abrahamic covenant was to be a blessing to the world. They chose to use it to slaughter the world, so to speak. So the last thing that we've seen is that these two guys, Simeon and Levi, are violent, ungodly men who did not care about the covenant of God. So much so that when we get to the blessing of Jacob on his 12 sons, he leaves these two guys out of the blessing. They're the only two sons that don't get a blessing. They don't get land. They don't get inheritances. They get nothing. In fact, Jacob says that when you become a nation, you're not going to get any land and you're going to be scattered in all the other tribes. You're going to lose your identity. Okay, so now we've got Levi, this guy, Moses, being born to the tribe of Levi, and you're thinking, does anything good come out of Levi? And that's a reoccurring theme throughout the Bible, as we've seen with Nazareth. And so the idea is, this is the last people. You expect this family to screw it all up. You expect this family to go violent or do something wrong. These family, they don't even fear God in the right way. But after 400 years of slavery, this is different. Okay? And so the first thing you're learning is that, whoa. But at the same time, you're an Israelite. And the first person is reading this book ever is an Israelite. And to the Israelite, the Levites are the well-respected, fully established priesthood that we're going to learn about. And they're not yet in this story, but they will be. So in one sense, you've got this like horrible past of violence. 
But in the other sense, you are an Israelite listening to this for the first time ever being told to you. And they're the priesthood who's atoning for your sins on a daily basis. And so basically, this is introducing this story of how did we get from that to this. And it's basically what God is going to do with them. And that's very important because this is a constant theme throughout the entire Bible of God taking the losers, so to speak, and making them somebodies. And that's exactly what he's going to do with Moses. And so this is what it's introducing to you, is foreshadowing what they will eventually be. Now what's also interesting is that this is the 16th time that Moses throughout Genesis has recorded the phrase, she became pregnant and gave birth to da-da-da-da. We saw this with she became pregnant and gave birth to Isaac. She became pregnant and she gave birth to Esau and Jacob. She, and this theme is going through. Now, in a lot of those cases, those women were barren, and God miraculously provided for them. But the point is that she's not barren here. The point is that you're getting used to God choosing people at birth to do amazing things with them. And so this is the 16th time, and it's now used of Moses. But here's what's interesting. It's the final time. You will never see this phrase ever again in the Torah. And the reason is Moses probably views himself as the final deliverer. That all these people that God is using, this guy, Moses, is going to be the one that's going to finally bring Israel into the promises. And that's what you will see as we go through the rest of the Torah. Moses becomes this huge figure. He becomes the greatest prophet that has ever lived other than Jesus Christ. And he is going to be the one who will make them into what they are going to be. And he will end Israel's first chapter with the book of Deuteronomy. This is very significant that you should know that something significant is going to happen now. Now, we all know the story, and thanks to the Ten Commandments movie, but, but if you're reading it for the first time, I mentioned this last time in Genesis, I would love, I, one of the disadvantages of growing up as a Christian is you just kind of grow into these stories over time. But one of the coolest things I think would be to be is kind of forget everything that I grew up with and read the story for the first time ever, not knowing what was going to happen. Like that first time you watched the movie, and you didn't know what was going to happen. So you've got to kind of put yourself there. You don't know what's going to happen, but you know from this phrase something significant is going to happen. And that's the important thing. So she hides a child for a certain amount of period of time until he was... Um, Three, um, for three months. So he's still a little baby, three months old, can't take care of himself. And the irony here is she obeys Pharaoh. Pharaoh commanded that all the boys be thrown into the river. So what does she do? She throws her boy into the river. She just kind of altered it a little bit. Never said anything about not having a basket. So she puts it in a basket and covers it with pitch and tar. Now what's interesting is this Hebrew word for this basket is the exact same word used of Noah's Ark is basically the ark. And so what you should see is just like God delivered Noah through the chaos of the water, he's also going to deliver Moses through the chaos of Egypt's water that's threatening to kill all these baby boys and is. And so God intentionally wants you to see this as an act of deliverance through the chaos. And so he's thrown in the basket, and his older sister, Miriam, we're not told her name here, but we will find out later in Exodus 14 that her name is Miriam, watches over her, him. Now, what's interesting is that she's kind of just following the basket downriver to make sure that everything will turn out okay. But here's the irony. 
what in the world is a little girl going to do taking care of a little baby boy in the basket in the Nile against an Egyptian army that might discover the boy? I mean, maybe it's more just to report back to mom whether the child survived or not, but it seems less likely that she's a guardian. There's no way a little child like this can become a guardian. But in some ways, she's going to be exactly in the right place when God does this thing to kind of become a guardian in the way that she can be. And so the basket goes. And lo and behold, it comes to the Egyptian princess. Verse 5. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself by the Nile. And while her attendants were walking alongside the river, she sent one of her attendants to look, um, to took it. They opened it, and she, she saw a child, a boy, baby boy, crying. And she felt compassion for him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children. Now, this princess is bathing. Okay, this is very, very common in the ancient Near East, especially with the Nile. The Nile was viewed as a god, as a blessing, a source of life. Her palace is probably built up right onto the Nile. She's out there bathing, and notice that she sends an attendant out to get the basket. There's a very disconnection here. I don't have to do this kind of stuff. And they send and get the basket, and they bring the basket back, and she's the one that opens it. And what's interesting is the Hebrew word here is, it's not in a lot of translations, but the words should be translated, behold. Okay, whenever the word behold is used in the Bible, it's like neon sign, seriously take a look, something significant is going to happen. It also is forcing you to put yourself in the perspective of that person. So if this is a Hollywood movie, What you would have is the director would take the cue of this behold and the director would have the camera on the side of the Nile as the basket goes down and the unknown insignificant attendant goes and gets the basket and it brings it to the princess and hands it to the princess and that word behold would automatically do a camera change and the camera would be above her shoulder and you would be looking into the basket as the basket was opened just like she is. The point is to let you know that you're now her and you are seeing the exact same thing that she sees. And it's surprising. Who in the world expects a boy to be in a basket? Let alone notice that she recognized immediately that he was a Hebrew. Now, at this point, you know her duty to her father is to kill this thing, to throw it back in the Nile and drown it. But we're told that she was filled with compassion for the boy. And this moved her. Because what was interesting is that her compassion overrode all the authority and the edicts of the most powerful man in the entire world. And here's what's interesting. What is typically seen as a human weakness, the compassion of women in this culture, turns out to be the greatest strength that God is going to use to save this child. And so God wants you to see this as the, the irony is that the, woman, the daughter of Pharaoh is going to be the one who saves the person that Pharaoh once killed. And what he thinks is insignificant, the women, and feels the males as a threat, actually becomes the weapon of God. And what is often seen as weakness, compassion, and especially from an Egyptian Pharaoh, is going to become the greatest weapon that God is going to use to save Moses. And so the whole point is that God is acting contrary to everything that the culture would think. And that's what he continues to do all the time. 
And so he uses these people to save him. This has got to be a powerful woman to convince Pharaoh to change his edict for this one child, to make an exception. You've got to, uh, whether she's got daddy wrapped around her little finger or she's influential, I have no idea. Um, there's a, if we go to the dating of 1446 view of the Exodus, if you do it all back, this possibly could be the female pharaoh Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut was a female pharaoh that became very powerful, and she actually became one of the first female rulers over all of Egypt, and she was very powerful. She actually dressed, she put a fake beard on her chin and painted her face to look like a man so that when people would see her, they would not think woman immediately. I mean, they knew she was a woman, but it would remove the visualness at least. And um, she ruled. So it's possible that the math works on a 1446 view, that it's possible that this is her. And if it is her, that explains why, one, this woman would be able to stand up to Pharaoh because she became a very powerful woman herself. And two, it might also explain why when Pharaoh dies that Moses receives so much protection if his own mother has now become the Pharaoh over all of Egypt. Now, there's no way to prove this without a shadow of doubt with what we know now in archaeological discoveries, but the math does work, and it's very possible. And so he uses her. Now, it also may explain... Because eventually Moses is going to have this midlife crisis, so to speak, at the age of 40. He's not going to feel like he belongs to the Egyptians. Well, maybe one of the reasons is because when she died, the nephew became the next pharaoh, Thutmose III, and he despised Hatshepsut. Okay, and he devoted himself to erasing everything of her from Egyptian records. He gave his men pickaxes, and they picked her face away off of all the monuments. They picked her name away. And if it hadn't been for a monument that was way, 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 way out in the middle of the desert that, for whatever reason, he ignored, that eventually got buried under sand and then was revealed in the 1920s, we probably would have never known that she existed. And so it could be possible... If the new pharaoh hates mom and he's erasing her, I'm probably next, especially since I'm a Hebrew. So that might explain why he all of a sudden says, hey, I want to be a Jew now. Okay, but you're not really switching to a good side on that one. So those are possible explanations. Like I said, the Bible is not interested in that. The Bible is not interested in why Moses is doing it. The Bible is not interested in why he has protection. The Bible is only interested in this is what's happening. Okay, stories, any story you read is not interested in telling you every single detail. Stories are written to tell you the details that you need to know to continue the story along. So, but I just want you to know that there are explanations out there somewhere in history that makes a story very real and very historical um, based on the evidence. So, she felt compassion for him, one of the Hebrew children. Then the sister, who just happened to be, happened to be in the right place at the right time, comes up to her and basically says, hey, you are not capable of nursing this kid. I mean, she doesn't say all this, but the implication is you're not capable of nursing this kid because you haven't given birth. But there's tons of Hebrew women out there now who are capable of nursing. And oh, by the way, they don't have anybody nurse because your father killed them all. Do you want me to go find one of them? Now, all this is kind of the unspoken message that's going on here. And of course, the Hebrew woman says, or sorry, the Egyptian princess says yes. 
Now, this is significant because we just learned that Egyptian women from the midwives probably are less likely to be involved with their own birthing process and maybe their own raising of their children. If you've ever seen the movie The Help, typically when you get more wealthy and powerful, then you tend to be less likely to want to do those menial tasks. And so not only does she need somebody to take care of the baby, but she probably would have done that anyways, just being an Egyptian princess. So God uses that to bring the mother back into his life. And so the daughter goes out and gets the mother and brings her back. And we don't know whether she knows that this is the biological mother. I'm sure that would be a very scary thing to reveal. Hey, I just happen to be the one that defied your father. Just because you have compassion for my son doesn't mean you're going to have compassion for me. And so she begins to take care of her. So these simple commands, take this child and go and come back, becomes the relief. He's safe. Everything is good. But we still don't know what is going to happen to this boy. So we're told that when the child grew older, verse 10, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter to become her son. And she named him Moses, saying, because they drew him from the water. So we're told that he becomes weaning age. Now in the ancient world, weaning your child happens anywhere between three to six months old. Or sorry, years old. Sorry, Three to six years old. Now I know weaning your child off of breastfeeding at three to six years old in our culture seems like, holy cow, that's kind of late. But the reality is you're talking about a culture that is very, they don't have the same food resources and the nutrients that we do. And that children surviving to the age of six years old is incredibly rare. I mean, many, many, many children are lost in childbirth and many, many, many children don't make it to the age of six or 10 years old. And so when you are already fearful that your child will not make it to 10 years old because that's the high statistics of this time period, and you have a free food source that you're producing on a daily basis, and it provides all the nutrients that he needs, and the best nutrients that any child could have if you find out what's all in there, that's a no-brainer. What seems awkward to us is the life of your child to them. And so, and usually they would stop weaning because by the time they got around six years old, then their, their chances of surviving just exponentially increase. And so it is at that point that he's now ready to go to. Now notice it says that she brought the child to the princess, which means who's been spending most of the time with this child? It's been the biological mother. Now, many of you have been parents, and you know by four or six years old, there's a lot that you can teach your child by then. Okay, Identities are actually stamped by the age of four. Okay, We've learned now through modern-day psychology and studies that a child at the age of four years old pretty much begins to stamp their identity in. And they begin to, what's interesting is you actually pick, if you know multiple languages, I think this one's interesting. If you know multiple languages, as a four-year-old, like dad's speaking one language, mom is speaking another, and at school they're speaking another, they've taken kids who can speak three languages fluently. At the age of four years old, their brain picks a language and sticks with it. Not that they can't, they're not fluent in the other ones anymore, but that becomes their default and their predominant one. Okay, And so they've found all these things at the age of four years old, their identity, what they think about themselves, what they think about mom and dad, all these things start becoming stamped in. Not unchangeable, 
but start becoming more um, concrete, so to speak, in their lives. This means that his basic default identity is a Hebrew. And he's going to look different than the Egyptians. Okay, There's a big difference between the way the Egyptians look and the way that Hebrews look. So he's going to grow up knowing that he's a Hebrew and that he's not like everybody else. That what's interesting, though, is but he's also going to spend the first 40 years of his life, other than this time period, growing up as an Egyptian, which means he's going to get a military Egyptian training. The best. This is like going to West Point. He's going to get the best military training that anyone can offer him. He's going to get training in politics. He's going to get training in strategy. He's going to get training in mathematics and science and and all this thing. He's going to get a Harvard education, basically. But he's also has had a mother who raised him in Jewish or Israelite traditions and beliefs. Because what God is going to do with this, when he gets to be about 80 years old, he's going to bring that infant identity out of him. He's going to appeal to that and say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom you came from. I am your God. It's time to deliver our people. He's going to use that. But at the same time, this guy has to take a bunch of slaves and make them into a nation. If he grew up as a slave, he would not have the training necessary to train Joshua to become a military leader, to lead an army, to be able to delegate and form a nation, to understand how laws work when God reveals the, the, the Ten Commandments and the, the Levitical law and all that kind of stuff, how to organize things. And so God has put him exactly where he needs to be to get the best of both worlds to become the perfect deliverer that God wants to use at this moment for these people at this time. This is not accidental. And what you could easily think as, my parents abandoned me, or I don't belong to this group because I'm not ethnically there, and I don't belong to this group because they see me as a traitor. Well, all that that we would see as horrible suffering and trials and persecution, which is, is becomes the very thing that's going to make him exactly what he needs to be to become the greatest deliverer the world has ever seen. And so this is important to understand that what we would see as trials, what we would see as why God, how could you, becomes the very thing that he needs. And so he is weaned, and he is given over, and he is given the name Moses. Now remember from last week, we talked about Egyptian pharaohs by the name of Ha-Mos and Tut-Mos. And these names, Ha-Mos, these names, she gives him a name of power. She gives him a name that's connected to this Moses idea. And the name Moses means to be drawn from the Nile. Now, which is interesting here, because the Nile is not only seen as a symbol of blessing, but in Egyptian history, or in, in um, Israelite traditions, water, raging water like this, is a symbol of chaos. Okay, And so just like God revealed the land out of the water at creation and placed man in the land as a blessing, now Moses has been drawn out of the water to become a blessing that will lead Israel to the promised land. These are themes that he's carrying throughout this, this passage here. Any questions? If you've got questions, please ask. I know this kind of setting, 
I, I know, like, here's the thing. When you're in church, you're not used to the pastor saying, hey. <laughs> but as a teacher, like, this is what I do all the time. Like, people would ask questions, I answer them, da-da-da-da-da, and then we get really far behind, but that's okay because at least they're learning. I suppose I could ask a question. I thought Moses was brought up by the Egyptian mom, but it seems like at the same time he was brought up by his actual mom. Yes. There seems to be the idea that for at least the first four or six years, it was his actual biological mom raising him. Now, the fair, the princess would have been involved a lot. She probably had a lot to say, I want this and I want that and da-da-da-da-da. But there's a sense that she brought, Mo- it says she brought Moses to the Egyptian princess at the time that he became of age to be weaned, which is not uncommon. Even in the palaces and that kind of stuff, even if it was her own, the princess, even if it was her own biological child, the child probably was spent most of her time, his time, with some kind of maidservant in some other part of the palace all the time anyways. So it really has nothing to do with he's a Hebrew boy and this is a mother. It just has everything to do with the way that royalty raises their kids for, for several years. You have to realize in the ancient world, children were really pretty much, you, you had children for two main reasons, to keep your line going and to have extra hands for the farm. Okay. Children were not really highly respected in the ancient world that much. It wasn't until they became around 12 years old that they started being considered an adult. And I know we're used to that thinking, Jesus 12, he became an adult, da-da-da. But you've got to realize that they were not considered as precious and a whole culture built around them like it is today in our culture. Okay, Children were there. They were tend, they were tend to be seen as noisy, loud, and in the way. And then when they became adults and actually started to have a conversation with you, they were actually physically strong enough to actually be useful, that's when they became a blessing. Now, don't get me wrong either. I don't want to swing the pendulum over the too far extreme, make you think that nobody loved their children, nobody was willing to die for them, that there wasn't this sense of compassion and love and that kind of stuff, but not just this uber-over-focus um, on them that we have today. Now, I'm not saying what we have today is wrong. Actually, I think it's probably better this way, the way we have it now. But they just didn't have that. So it was somewhere in there. 